What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of historical fiction, family reading, and fitness. Our first guest is Candace Fleming, and we'll chat about some of her historical fiction novels. Then we'll talk with Joe Hadfield about his experiences reading with his family. Finally, we'll discuss physical fitness with David Barney, a physical education professor. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a reading of Quangle Wangle's Hat and listen to local kids share their thoughts on reading. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's Words make up an important part of my life as a reader, writer, and a teacher. I'd suggest that they probably make up an important part of your life and the life of your children as well. The body of words used in a language is termed the vocabulary, and having and understanding this word bank is what helps us to communicate. It is clear that one of the most important parts of learning to read is vocabulary. The start of reading is being able to understand that the words you hear also have an equivalent in printed form. So the beginning of learning vocabulary and developing a large vocabulary bank that is essential for reading starts with speaking and listening. So for the very youngest readers, talking and interacting with lots of words is the best way to start. As children develop into good print decoders, however, the need to build vocabulary remains. Even as an adult, it is important for us to learn new vocabulary, so we can not only recognize it in print, but we can also know its meaning. For older children and teens in particular, one of the important things they must begin to learn goes beyond the vocabulary of daily language to the more complex vocabulary of the unusual or specific contexts. But even outside of the classroom, there are great ways to engage with unusual vocabulary. First and foremost, it's important to read. Reading all kinds of texts from books to magazines and newspapers in all kinds of genres from fiction to nonfiction is one of the best vocabulary builders. Another good way to learn new words is to write them down and then use a dictionary to get a definition. So no matter if you're a young child just learning to read or an older reader encountering a new text, vocabulary matters. So here at Rachel's World, we recommend that for all kids, it's important for them to see, hear, and use lots of great words. Rachel's World Learning about history can be a powerful tool for a child. Today, I have author Candace Fleming on the phone. In the past, she's written biographies, but recently she's released two historical fiction books for children. Eleanor Roosevelt is in my garage and Ben Franklin is in my bathroom. Welcome, Candace. Thank you. Tell me, why did you want to write these books? Why make the transition from nonfiction biographies to historical fiction? You know, I'm always looking for ways to 
to bring history to kids. I know that, you know, it, it, they're not going to come to it. I know. <laughs> I've learned this. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah. So, so I'm trying, I was trying to find ways to sort of lure them into history. Um, and, um, particularly that fourth grade spot, I think about them a lot, third, fourth, and fifth graders. Um, and I thought to myself, I'm going to write, I'm going to write a series, and and I'm going to somehow I'm going to use history. And what finally occurred to me was that um, we've seen time travel; kids go back in time and meet historical figures. But I thought to myself, and this probably goes along with my love of the gray area: what would happen if historical figures turned up in the 21st century? What would they think of it? What connections would they make? between the times that they lived and the times that we're living in now. And if your hosts and uh, at, in the 21st century were two kids that brought you back accidentally, um, what, connections, what connections with those children? What would they learn from those people that came, you know, to, the, to their house, basically? Um, and so that's what I set out to do. And I didn't, you know, reinvent the wheel because I was trying to figure out who my child characters were and what the setting was and and so um the characters that they actually bring back from history are people that i i think i know pretty well having written um a straightforward biography of both of them benjamin franklin first came and then eleanor roosevelt was the second visitor from the past that has come and if you've read them you'll know that there's a lot of um my own life in there um for example their mother is a children's author <laughs> i love that i love that touch yes writing a series of funny books much like mine yeah. um, and um and is is um you know um, a little distracted should we say with her deadline and her writer's block and so she doesn't really quite know what's going on downstairs yeah. Um, thus, she misses the Ben Franklin appearance entirely. <laughs> I, um, I love that sense that you put in that the, the adults kind of are clueless in some ways, and the kids are the ones that interact with them. That that just adds such a such a wonderful connection to children. I think I think children love that when when the adults kind of don't know what's going on, they find that humorous. <laughs> well, I'm convinced that that when mine were young, they they I'm convinced they thought that I didn't have real handle on what was going on. <laughs> and maybe I just pretended like it did, or maybe I didn't. I like you I never did. know. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and then I wrote it in first person, so I have a fifth grade boy that tells the stories, um, and his slightly crazy little sister. Um, but then I realized that I wanted these characters to come in and give my readers some solid history in, in the sense that I wanted them to tell them stories about themselves. But uh, then that's when I realized I kind of worked myself into a corner because the narrator is first person. He's a fifth grade boy. How in the world do I have Benjamin Franklin then step in or Eleanor Roosevelt step in and tell you their firsthand account of their story? It would make no sense, um, which is when it struck me that I could actually use the graphic novel form. So the book is traditional, I think, sort of traditional um, novel, but it's broken. And there are four stories that each historical character tells that are completely true. So they are nonfiction, and but they're told graphically. So it's they they stop and tell their story, but it's told in graphic novel form, um, which is a little bit different. It's a hybrid, um, and you know we'll see. It, it looks that sounds like they're reading them. So they, we'll, it, we'll they are, and I I love them. I think that they they hit just a really interesting 
connection point that kids need with that graphic format, as well as the humor, as well as the nonfiction versus fiction kind of combination. I, I love it when you push those boundaries like that. One one other book that I'm fascinated to hear about that kind of pushes some of those boundaries is a work that you did with some other authors called Fatal Throne, um, which is just a wonderful, fascinating book of about Henry VIII and all of his wives. So tell us a little bit about that and how that book came to be. Oh, you know, I love Henry VIII. I've I've had an obsession with that story, like so many people. I think, you know, I bet I was in fifth grade and we watched uh, The Six Wives of Henry VIII on PBS. My mother and I watched it. And she was obsessed, too. So she told me all kinds of things through the through that PBS series, all kinds of other facts that she knew, like Anne Boleyn had six fingers. and I mean, my mother knew stuff, so it's like, wow, how could you not love that story? Um, and then in the last few years, I've been fascinated with, with um, the idea of multiple perspectives, um, that how six people can go and to the same event, and we all come home, and we all tell you what we saw at that event, and you'll get six entirely different stories. It's as if six people went to six different places, and none of them are telling, you know, they're not, they're not being dishonest, but they're telling their truth, like, you know, how they experienced how they thought it went. And, and you know, that just fascinates me. You know, and I know that also goes back to my love of history when you have, you know, six different sources for the same thing and they all say something different. Um, so I'm fascinated by multiple perspectives. And I'm, I've also been playing around with the idea. My friend Deborah Hopkinson and I had been messing around with ideas where we could write something together. We just thought that would be a lot of fun. And um, my... One of my other friends, Stephanie Hemphill, who's in my writer's group, um, was here one night for for dinner, and I was talking about how much I loved the Henry VIII story, and she did too. And all of a sudden it struck me, seriously, at that table, all of a sudden it struck me that this, this was the perfect vehicle for not only for me to explore that idea of multiple perspectives, but to also, you know, have some fun with my friends. So um, this is exactly what I did. So I asked some of my um, good friends and favorite writers to, to join me. And, and so, you know, I've, I'm pleased to report that they agreed. And I think we all had a really good time. Um, we would email each other. We didn't start with any parameters other than we all agreed that each 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 woman took a wife. Um, they picked the one that they felt um, closest to, uh, that they felt they could write. And so I chose no one. And I said, "You guys, just I'll get I'll take the leftover wife, you know, since you're agreeing to work on my project." Um, so I got stuck with Catherine of Aragon. That's how I felt uh, when I first found out that I was going to be Catherine of Aragon. But after that, she might be my favorite wife now. Um, <laughs> but but. Um, we didn't start with any rules or parameters other than the fact that each wife, the beginning of each wife's story would start when she realized um, she was doomed. And that doesn't mean, like, the moment their head was on the chopping block. Um, it could simply be in Catherine of Aragon's place where she realizes that he doesn't love her yeah. anymore. And that's for her as a moment of doom. In Catherine's life, she's got another eight years. But, but the moment she realizes it's sort of up for her is when she realizes that Henry no longer loves her. So each of us picked different moments in time, and then we told our stories. Um, 
and then the great M.T. Anderson, Tobin Anderson, came in as Henry VIII and sort of wrote his story between ours. Um, and interestingly, when we put those stories together, um, they they fit pretty well together. We certainly went back and we looked through through we looked through our stories for threads that we could pull all the way through, uh, like the jewelry, because the queen the queen's. Like my jewelry cap, mine. You like that? Catherine of Aragon's jewelry um, went to to Anne Boleyn, and then it got passed to Jane, and it ended all up ended up with with Catherine Parr. Um, and so we did go through and look for those sorts of things that would sort of link the stories together. But if the um, stories didn't match up, if if Anne Boleyn remembered an event differently than Catherine of Aragon or Jane Seymour, we decided that was really okay because that's how people would have remembered it, right? Well, and I must say, I love the end product. I love how it brings things together and brings an interesting depth to that story with the different voices and the different authors and their own styles and connections with with the wives uh, along those lines. I think it it is probably my favorite kind of historical telling of Henry VIII that that I've ever read, even Shakespeare's and stuff. So... You know, you've topped oh, really? that. Well, wow. <laughs> you've Thank topped you. that. Nice <laughs> so, so yeah, wow. I I just think it's such a fascinating, and I love how with you know with all of these books we've been talking about, you are pushing some boundaries. You're going, you know, kind of more short story. You're going more graphic novel. You're collaborating with with a wide range of people to to bring us a lot of of interesting things. So tell us a little bit on this vein of your writing. What's coming next? Hmm. Um, they have a wide variety here. Um, let me see. I've got my biography of Charles Lindbergh. Um, it's called The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh. Um, I also have a science nonfiction picture book with illustrated by Eric Roman, who I also did Giant Squid with, and I'm married to. So, um, good and, collaboration. <laughs> um, good collaboration called Honeybee. That would be with Neil Porter Books coming out. I think it's next year. Both of those books are out next year. And then we have, um, um, he and I also have a third in our Bulldozer series. I don't know the title yet. <laughs> I still haven't quite decided on that. Um, and then I have a couple other things. I have a, a wonderful little nonfiction, I shouldn't say little, but it's a nonfiction picture book about a woman named Helen Martini, best name ever, um, who is, um, was or became the first woman zookeeper at the Bronx Zoo. Oh, how fascinating. Um, but, first, but how fascinating is yeah. that she mothered her way in, which for me, you know, that's just, it speaks to me in ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you have to be a mother to understand it. But it truly, in the 1930s and 40s, her husband gets a job at the Bronx Zoo, and she's at home um, readying to have children. Seriously, they buy cribs and everything, and they don't have any children. Um, and she's so sad about this. And then one day, Fred, her husband, comes home, and he's got a baby lion cub that the lion, the mother, has rejected um, and won't take care of. And, in fact, they're concerned that the mother will hurt it. So they've separated this cub. They have to remember it's 60, 70 years ago. And so they don't know how to take care of this, this baby cub, which sort of explains how he why he's allowed to bring this baby home and and he actually says to her do do for it what you would do with a baby and so by instinct and pure love she 
takes she gets that cub to survive. She names him MacArthur, and when he's big enough to return to the zoo, to a different zoo, in fact, she's heartbroken. Um, but not for long, because not long after that, uh, three tigers are born with the same problem. So she takes in those three baby tigers. They survive. They grow up. She even says things, how wonderful it is to have three babies in the house. <laughs> just, I love that. But when they're finally old enough to return to the Bronx Zoo, um, Helen is, is, not, is not having it this time. She was heartbroken over MacArthur the lion. She's not letting um, Daka and Rajabi, she's not letting them go. Um, so she goes to the zoo with them, and unannounced to the officials at the zoo, she sets up a little nursery for them in the back of their cage behind the partition, which eventually grows into a nursery for them in the lion house, and she actually takes an old storeroom and turns it into what looks a lot like a baby's nursery, pink and blue ruffles, baby scales, bathtub, the whole thing. Um, And in this way, really backs into the job as zookeeper. When they discover she's there and they discover what an amazing job she's doing, they actually make her the zookeeper at the nursery. And this this is so wonderful. Candice, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, I loved every minute of it. Thanks so much. Candace Fleming is the author of Eleanor Roosevelt is in my garage and Ben Franklin is in my bathroom. Now it's story time. Today we have Reed Wolfley reading the poem Quangle Wangle's Hat by Edward Lear. On the top of the crumpety tree, the Quangle Wangle sat, but his face you could not see on account of his beaver hat, for his hat was a hundred and two feet wide with ribbons and bibbons on every side, and bells and buttons and loops and lace, so that nobody ever could see the face of the Quangle Wangle Quee. The Quangle Wangle said to himself on the crumpety tree, Jam and jelly and bread are the best of food for me. But the longer I live on this crumpety tree, the plainer than ever it seems to me that very few people come this way, and that life on the whole is far from gay said the Quangle Wangle Quee. But there came to the Crumpety Tree Mr. and Mrs. Canary, and they said, Did ever you see any spot so charmingly airy? May we build a nest on your lovely hat? Mr. Quangle Wangle, grant us that. Oh, please let us come and build a nest of whatever material suits you best, Mr. Quangle Wangle Quee. And besides to the Crumpety Tree came the stork, the duck and the owl, the snail and the bumblebee, the frog and the thimble fowl, the thimble fowl with a corkscrew leg. And all of them said, We humbly beg, we may build out homes on your lovely hat. Mr. Quangle Wangle, grant us that. Mr. Quangle Wangle Quee. And the golden grouse came there, and the pobble who has no toes, and the small Olympian bear, and the dong with a luminous nose, and the blue baboon who played the flute, and the orient calf from the land of Toot, and the addery squash and the bisky bat all came and built on the lovely hat of the Quangle Wangle Quee. And the Quangle Wangle said to himself on the crumpety tree, When all of these creatures move, what a wonderful noise they'll be. And at night by the light of the mulberry moon, they dance to the flute of the blue baboon on the broad green leaves of the crumpety tree, and all were as happy as happy could be with the Quangle Wangle Quee. 
literacy may grow in the classroom, but the seed is planted in the home. Parents play an integral role in helping their children develop a passion for reading. We're in the studio today with Joe Hadfield. He's the director of online communications here at BYU. And more importantly, he's a dad. Welcome, Joe. Thanks. It's good to be here. Joe, you're here today to kind of share with us some of your family literacy strategies and, and things you do as a family to to help you uh, engage your kids with reading and books. So to start out, one of the things I know that you do is you're, you're a huge advocate for audiobooks. So tell us a little bit about the role that audiobooks play in your family. Yeah, they definitely play a unique role. You know, we, we have lots of physical books always available at the house, but what we've noticed with each of our children, we have four and when you get to that stage where they're graduating from the easy readers that have pictures and a couple of sentences on the one page and you're getting into text-heavy chapter books, um, that's a bit of a challenge to make that transition. And audiobooks are a way of making that – bridging the gap. Um, we've got some family go-to books for that period of life. Uh, we've – Trumpet of the Swan, the E.B. White book. Beautiful. That's actually my favorite E.B. White. I love it more than Charlotte's Web. <laughs> and Charlotte's is, Web is a fantastic book, too. right? It's a fantastic book. But Trump of but the Trump Swan is my Swan, favorite. Yeah. No, not sure why it's yeah. less, less known, but mm-hmm. it's such a fantastic book for children at that age. Um, and so we've listened to that many times on road trips and, and whatnot. Um, another one that specifically for our boys was uh, a lot of fun was listening to Rocket Boys. The Homer Hickam book Beautiful that turned book, into yeah. October Sky, yeah, the movie, mm-hmm. um, just because it's so fascinating for them to see kids having a, yeah. they get to hear kids having adventures, and whether it's fiction or nonfiction, um, that's something that just entices them, and and so it's not long after you get a few good audiobooks in that they they're ready to take on one themselves. Yeah. Well, and you have one son who you say doesn't sit still very often, but there's one thing he will sit still for, and that is? <laughs> That's listening to audiobooks on the Xbox. Um, he loves the Rangers Apprentice series and can probably Excellent. tell you yeah. about that if you have yeah. a chance to talk to him. Um, and it's just fantastic because even though he'll sit still, he's, his fingers start to fidget, but he'll look at the screen because they – this. The TV screen has these cool patterns going yeah. while the Xbox is playing the audiobook. <laughs> yeah. So he's looking at this mesmerizing pattern. But um, he'll sit there for an hour at a time and we can't even get him to sit at the dinner table for two bites in a row. You know, <laughs> He'll pop yeah. up and yeah. run around and yeah. pick something up and throw it and yeah. then come back. <laughs> so it's pretty fantastic to watch. I think he was the one that figured out that you could play an audiobook from a CD – on the Xbox. And, and so it was such a great breakthrough. I was glad he experimented with yeah. it. Well, and that's such a great tip because I don't think people realize how available audiobooks are today, that you can play them through all different kinds of devices. And, um, you know, we have an Amazon Alexa in our home and we just say, Amazon, play my audiobooks on Audible, right? And it plays right there. So there's so many ways in this day and age to get them in your home, free ways through your library and all this kind of stuff. So it, it's not it's not limited anymore. You, you right. can get them through the Xbox or anything. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. fantastic because it's one since we're, we don't have the Xbox version that's connected to the Internet. Yeah. So it's one that we trust him to run on his yeah. own yeah. Um, where if we're busy and can't supervise, um, we're okay with him just yeah. popping it in and going with it. That's such a great tip. I love that. 
One of the things that I also know from your family is that you're in great into diversity. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about what you do with literacy in your home is that it's not just one thing. So, you know, you go to the library and you get like everything possible. So tell us a little bit about that. Why do you think that diversity is so important? And how do you encourage your children reading a diverse range of books? Yeah, they. it's funny to me because I growing up, I was the kid that would get one or two books because I did not – I felt guilty checking anything out that I probably wasn't going to read and, and you know, was really efficient with my, my checkouts from the library. And, and raising kids, my wife brought this metal frame basket home from the library and they said, what is that? You know, and it holds like 40 books. And she said, oh, the, there's a limit on how many you can check out at a time. It's 100. And who knew, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Well, now I know, and we usually have three or four dozen books from the library at our house. And so when we're, we go to check out books from the library, the kids get to run around and pick the stuff they like. And then the, whichever one of us is there at the library, we'll start scouting out other stuff. Um, one of the ones that I I was proud of introducing the kids was the uh, the book, the series Asterix. Oh, that's so fun. Yes. Because I get to yeah. hear things um, from – a European perspective yeah. and it's a little quirky and different. Just yeah. make some ask questions and it's a lot of fun. So just scouting around for things that um, they wouldn't pick themselves, but they're kind of suckers for our recommendations. So, Well, and I think that's really great about the about connecting what you're interested in to what the kids are interested in. So how does that work for you and your family? How do you encourage the kids to read stuff that you're interested in? And then how do your kids encourage you to read stuff that they're interested in? Oh, how did you know they did that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've – it works both ways for sure. One of the um, fun ones for me – I don't read a lot of fantasy. Um, maybe I just lack imagination. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love my nonfiction. But – one of my kids, Daniel, recommended to us um, – he really wanted me to read some Brandon Sanderson. And and I felt guilty because uh, I've I've actually met Brandon Sanderson. And I should actually have read Red one of his books. books yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of my sons recommended Steelheart as the starter book. And it was so fascinating. And, and just every day at breakfast, you know, the Daniel wanted to know, OK, how far did you get? Where are you at right now? And then, ooh, it's about to get good. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's, that definitely happens. Um, and as far as us recommending books to them, uh, you know, we kind of predict things that we might have a shared interest in. So when some of my kids are playing a sport that through the city league, uh, we'll find maybe a a famous athlete that there's a book about them. So a Jackie Robinson book or a book. Steve Young or something like that um, to just put it in front of them and see if they see if they like it. Um, trying to think of a few other examples, but a lot of it just has to do with um, every time we're reading a book, we'll get asked what it's about, and so they kind of make their own decision on if they want to go for it too. I love that. How do you navigate those waters when you don't necessarily like the same book, right? So, you know, there's when you both love it, it's great things. But how, how does that work with your family when maybe you don't like something that they're reading and they love it or vice versa? We just retreat to our own corners, right? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, no, yeah. there's no need yeah. to. Yeah. We don't have to like yeah. the same stuff. Um, we need to be aware of what's in the book. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll 
be careful about what we read. And there's times where what I'm reading is not appropriate for yeah. them at their age. And so, uh, you know, Ready Player One was an example of something where I thought this is uh, – they're they're close to being yeah, old enough. <laughs> close yeah, to being yeah. old enough. and uh, But for now, I can just fascinate them with the summary if that's yeah. what they want. And uh, so I did. Um, so it's it's interesting – they're not, they're not complainers. Maybe they steal the book when I'm gone or something, but <laughs> but usually they respect and understand yeah. that um, not yet. You'll graduate into that kind of reading. And I think that's a great conversation to have with children and say, you know, this is this is a book that's for my age and for where I am in life and not quite ready for you. And we can be honest about those kinds of things without without making it a negative thing. Right. Yeah. One of the things that I, I love about you and the way you work is that you also are a writer and you do podcasts. And so this isn't just about reading in your family. This is also about production and, and other forms of literacy like writing. So what are some of those things that you do in your family to either model for your kids or to help engage your kids in that type of other literacies beyond reading? Yeah. And some of it, the kids just do themselves naturally. Um, there's been a few occasions where they've produced a family newsletter or or even a fictional newsletter. And so we make sure to screenshot it and put it in the journal. Love it. <laughs> They're fantastic. Uh, a little while ago, I started a book podcast with my brother who moved in a, moved to Alaska. And this was something I thought we, we could have a lot of fun with this and it would help us bridge the distance yeah. between us. And we each have three sons and a daughter, just coincidentally, and and so we'll take turns letting our kids make the advertisements for the podcast. So far, we've been calling them false advertising because we don't <laughs> we don't have many real advertisers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they'll write it and record it, and we'll do some editing with them, and it's pretty fun to watch them, especially when you're you open up the sound editing software on the laptop, yeah. and they get to watch the you know the ups and downs of their voice and where it peaks and where it gets soft and um, wa- get to watch us clean something up if they didn't want that word in there or if they started to laugh. Um, it's pretty amazing for them to realize that, oh, there's some science behind sound. And so we're having a lot of fun with that. And that the, it, that's amazing to me because technological technology is so available today that any family can do this, right? This is something that kids can play around with. And sometimes the kids are actually better at it than the adults. And so having that as, as kind of part of your family culture or the way you build things as, as families is just an amazing way to bring all kinds of literacies into your home. As, as we close up our conversation today, Maybe tell us one of those things that you wish you had done better as as a family. What what if you could change something in in your kind of family literacy culture? What would be one of those things that you would change, and what would be one of those things that you wouldn't change that you would keep that you would think would be so important to your culture that you would never want it to go away? That's a great question. I'm going to think about that. <laughs> I ask the hard questions. I yeah. really do. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Cole. Yeah, yeah see, see I was just the, the hard-hitting questions. See, you, you thought you were going to come over here and get the easy questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think part of being a parent um, is one of my survival mechanisms is to not allow myself to imagine what I would change. That's good. Because if you go down that road, you're, <laughs> you're down the, you, down the shoot. You're going to find a lot yeah. of things that you maybe yeah. shouldn't have yeah. done. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, 
I think I think reading with our kids is probably the, one of the things that we've done right. Um, and I give most of that credit to my wife just because of the 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 variety of books that she exposed the kids to early on, and and it's just become so much fun and such a core part. Um, you know, and I I don't regret the times where I've had to really step in and say you are grounded from reading today because that's it's become yeah. so much of <laughs> yeah. a part of what they yeah. do that there are occasions where you can't read all day yeah. you have to get you have to get outside now there's something else so, <laughs> yeah right. well thank you joe for coming in today i really appreciate you opening up your literacy world in your family and helping us get a snapshot of what you do and maybe some great ideas for other families out there of what they might want to incorporate into their families thank you thank you Joe Hadfield is the Director of Online Communications at BYU. Now, let's take a listen to a few local kids as they tell us their thoughts on reading. Why do you think reading is fun? When I read a lot, I kind of get into the book and I forget the world around me. It kind of takes you on an adventure and, and takes you out of like a real, like your real world situations. It's something that can keep you up at night. It can have an impression on your life, or it can give you, give you an excuse to get away from your brother. Why has reading made a difference in your life? I think it really helps because sometimes there's just this really good character that I look up to, and I look at the attributes that they have, and I think... I want to be like that person. They're so cool. Why do you think it's important to start reading when you're young and in school? It's easier when you start young because you can start with like books that aren't like have as big as words, and then you can go on to um, bigger books. And also, it can help you with like other things like writing or like spelling because you can see the words a lot in books that will help you. It, like, introduces you to the whole world of books and to so many things. And when you're a little kid, you have such a great imagination. So hearing about all these stories just makes you wish you were one of those people. And it's just a great thing. It helps with lots of vocabulary and spelling and things like that. If you start young, you will progressively get better and better so you can start reading, like, harder books than where you started from. What would you maybe say to a friend who doesn't like reading very much? I would tell them to pick up a book and read until they think that reading is good or they can never live. I'd recommend a book or a series that has a lot of excitement because once you're in the book, I think uh, exciting books help you get into the book a little more. I actually know two people who don't like to read, my brother and my cousin. Um, My cousin is almost 12, so I told him that if he doesn't start to like reading soon, then he's going to have a really hard time in middle school. What is the best part about reading a good book? I think it's just learning, and it's hearing what's being said and how it makes you feel included, because... If I'm having like a hard time at school or something, I just can't wait to get home because whenever I have a good book, I feel like that world was 
just meant for me. If you don't like a book very much, how can you make reading a better activity? Sometimes if you find a book that you don't like, it's probably because it's not meant for your age group, so you can like try it in a few years. Sometimes when you're reading a book, you make it to a super boring part and you just think, oh, this book is going to be so horrible. I mean, nothing good is going to happen. But if you just read through it and get past it, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a great ending. More good things are going to happen in the book. Well, if you don't like the book, then it's probably just like not for you and you should just read a different book until you find the right one and if if you can't find a good one then just find like a book that you read in your childhood that you really liked even if it's like one that your little brother or sister would be reading it could help you like reading more and so you could understand more and like like the book more that you had trouble reading Children learn a lot at school that can be applied well into their adult lives. Learning how to write a persuasive essay can help them write persuasive pitches in their future jobs. Knowing how to do quick, simple mathematical equations in their heads can help them make decisions when comparing prices or creating a budget. But what long-term benefits come out of physical education classes? Today, we have physical education professor David Barney in the studio. Welcome, David. Thank you. Good to be here. One of the things that I know is that there's some great connections, and physical education particularly makes some great connections. So let's start out there. What what are some of the connections that we make with physical education to other parts of our lives? Um, first of all, thanks for having me. It's good to be here um, for this opportunity to talk a little bit about something I thoroughly enjoy and have a passion for. Uh, there is a lot of connectedness. It does play an important part. Uh, we're, we're finding, we found, personally I've found that as you are physically active, as you participate, something, and, and, and this isn't saying something bad, but it's, if, if, you can, if you just go out and walk, what comes of that is, is, is really a great benefit. Um, we're finding that physical activity... Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm no physiologist. I'm a pedagogist. But the research is showing that it does stimulate the brain. The blood flow increases, thus encouraging, uh, magnifying, making learning more possible. Um, some years ago, I did a study, and I asked elementary classroom teachers, I said, what happens to your kids when they come back from physical education class? So this was this was K through 6. Um, elementary classroom teachers, and and surveyed them, interviewed them, and talked with them, and they said, you know, they come back, and they're a little hyped up, which is understandable, but they can they can come down, we can get them down, and 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 they can focus better, they they read better, um, and they they said amazingly, they do really good with math, and and again, this is K through six, never did anything with the junior high, or the high school kids, but again, they're finding that they come back. And, and, and they're more focused. You know, and so if you're, if you're a classroom teacher, <laughs> a classroom teacher, an elementary classroom teacher, and you have your students come back and they're able to sit down and do those things, you know, it probably makes your job a lot easier. And so that was, I thought that was very 
satisfying, rewarding to hear that, hey, physical education can help classroom teachers or can play a part in helping students learn. I I think that's a wonderful way to look at it, David, because it really is this sense of interconnectedness. And I think sometimes we put things in a little box. We say, oh, this is PE and this is reading and this is math. And we put them in all these little boxes. But when they really develop and go together in this very fun way. And I like this sense of focus. Let's delve into that a little bit more. What What is it about your study in your studies that you found that really helps them bring that focus after that kind of activity? Well, it, it, during the talking to the teachers in the interviews, <laughs> a lot of the teachers said, you know, the kids come back and they get their wiggles out or their nervous energy or that energy taken out. And because of that, you know, the teacher says, okay, let's get out our math books or let's get out our reading books. And, and they do it, but then they, 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 they sit there and they can focus and they can read. And, and they never really came out and said it. The teachers never really came out and said it, but they said they're able to read. And the teacher says, okay, what did we read? Or can you tell us what we read? Or tell me what four times eight is or whatever. And the kids can, can, can remember it or they can recall it. And so I thought, well, boy, that's I think that's pretty important, um, and in helping kids learn. And then, and then as these kids, you know, they go, hey, I can remember this, or hey, I can be a part of the conversation. To a certain degree, I think it can help them feel like, hey, this is important, or this is good stuff. That sense of knowing if it's good stuff is really yeah. helpful. And I think a lot of times we as adults put labels on things or we decide if it's good or not. And we don't help <laughs> kids understand if it's good or not. So beyond focus, I think focus is a really great thing. But beyond focus, what is physical education good for? What is what is its benefit, particularly for children? You know, I, I, I tell my students or we tell our students we say, you know, we're, we're, we're not preparing these kids to be the starting pitcher for the Dodgers or to be the starting quarterback for the Rams or whatever. But they could be if they wanted if to. If they want to, <laughs> that, that's, that's an added bonus. <laughs> we, want them to, we want them to learn skills that will be able to carry them throughout their whole life, um, that will be able to give them the simple pleasure of being able to go out and to go on a jog and enjoy it or to go out and play basketball with your child. Um, what's kind of interesting is... My neighbor across the street, good man, and we, we come to find out, we've lived there for five years with him, come to find out he likes playing catch. I love playing catch. My daughter's 19 years old. She's not a real big baseball fan. My, my 10-year-old son, he has other interests. And so my neighbor and I, we play catch. And so something as simple as throwing and catching a ball, um, and some people may go, um, that's not that big of a deal. Well, my neighbor, he says, you know, this is really therapeutic for me. <laughs> And I'm glad I can be that. But, you know, for me, it's just, it's just good, good old fun, good, clean fun. Um, but something like that, that we're, we're teaching them skills that they can carry throughout their whole life and that they can benefit from um, and then get some health benefits from at the same time. I love that. And I, that story that you tell brings up an interesting thought to me that a lot of this, too, is about the social relationships that it we is. build. So a lot of sports and a lot of these kinds of activities are about social relationships. So do you see benefits there, kind oh, of in yeah. the social nature? Exactly. There, there is. Um, you know, you teach kids how to work together. Now, again, I'm not in athletics, but in, when, you, when you're in an athletic team, basketball team, football team, hockey team, whatever it might be, even if you play tennis, you're probably playing with other athletes, but you have to work together. Um, there's that, that element of communication, give and take. 
the element of of listening to instructions, directions, uh, simple things, but really pay off big down the road later in life. I mean, if you can't get along with people, you probably won't have a job <laughs> or keep a job for that for that reason. And so, you know, simple benefits, simple blessings, are things that come from that. I know, and I that. It amazes me just this kind of extension. When we start thinking about things a little more broadly, we see all of these other kind of benefits. Of course, the health benefits go without saying. But then you say things like being able to follow instructions. (laughs) And in some ways, I think actually problem solving would be a huge part of this. So what kind of those mental skills do uh, physical education kind of activities help us build with our children? Well, I think I don't know I don't know how mental this is, but I think one thing it teaches them determination, mm. um, the ability to stick to something, to see it through, to get it done. My son signed up to play soccer, and, and as the season progressed, he says, "You know, Dad, I don't think I want to play soccer." And I said, "Sam, <laughs> we've signed up. I've paid money. You're playing." Type of thing, and so I hopefully to teach him to say, "Hey, Sam, we need to do, we need we need to stay on task. We need to be determined to get this done." And again. Uh, the social skills, being able to get along and being able to, you know, work together. I mean, obviously, you can look, you look back in life or you can look back and say, you know, I didn't like this person, but I had to work with them Um, and we had to work it out. We had to communicate, whatever it might be. And and not that you're going to have problems like that in, in a PE class, but yet the fact that you're having to work with people, having to communicate, I think is something that can benefit throughout your whole life. And I really like that, David, because the the sense of this benefit lasting throughout your whole life is, is important. I know there's a lot of research right now out there about this sense of grit is what they're calling it, this yes. determination, yes. being able to stick with things. And they're finding that people that have this grit are the ones that are successful. And I think, like you said, that PE and physical activity and enjoying being able to enjoy physical uh-huh. activity can help us build that real deep sense of grit. Right. It, it um, again, we're not going to prepare these kids to be professional athletes, but they're going to teach. They're going to learn. I think they're going to learn some lessons. I feel they're going to learn lessons that can pay off throughout their life down the road um, as they go throughout their life. What advice would you have for parents or concerned adults that are involved in kids' lives? How can they help their children really kind of find this joy and love mm-hmm. that comes from physical activity? Probably one of the main things is to make it fun, make it enjoyable. Um, I've seen parents that truly love their kids, <laughs> but almost too much, to the point where they're they're paying large amounts of money, they're driving them all over to play in the sports, which, again, are good. But truly, in many cases, the children aren't enjoying it. It's not a good experience. Uh, they burn out. Make it fun. Make it enjoyable. If it's not fun, then why do it? <laughs> but I, I cannot agree more. You know, but there is this tricky balance, particularly for adults, like with you and your son saying, we paid money, you're going to do it. Right. So how do we as adults kind of find that balance, particularly some of these more constructed activities right. like sports teams? And that's and- a $75 question, finding that balance, finding what you want. And so this summer, again, my son, um, I told him, I said, Sam, I said, you're going to read this summer. And he didn't like that. But anyway, he's been reading. And I said, Sam, whatever you read, find something you like, okay? And so we've gone through four or five different books. We've got maybe four or five chapters. He's like, I don't like this. I said, okay, Sam, let's find something else. And so we found something 
that he seems to have caught his interest. And so finding something that, that the kids are vested in or like or interested in um, is kind of the hook to get them going. And hopefully they'll have experiences that will make it better, encourage them um, to, to, to keep on, to keep going um, as they participate. You know, and as a physical education teacher, having an activity and say, was this an enjoyable experience? And if they say no, well, then maybe we shouldn't do this again. <laughs> as much as you like it, like it or love it or, or thought it went well, if they don't like it, then let's find something else. Um, these, these little people, these young people, they're sharp. They're smart. They, they know what they want. And I think that that is a perfect note to end on. They are sharp. And if we as adults engage with them in that way, we'll be able to find things that they love and are passionate about and that make them into really <laughs> amazing adults someday. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time today, David. Thank you. David Barney is a physical education professor at BYU. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in the studio with Elise Silva and Suzanne Julian, librarians here at the BYU Library. We are academic librarians, and so we work in an academic librarian, and particularly for the both of you, you also work in a very particular role where you are what is called instruction librarians. So tell our audience, what does that mean? What, what, what is an instruction librarian? It looks a little different, I think, for each person in our area. So my role is more as a coordinator. So I look at the overall picture of the instruction and look at initiatives that we can take on. So assessment becomes a really big piece of my role as a librarian. And then I get to interact with colleagues and see how they teach and what best practices we have and promote those within the library and the university. I think a lot of people will probably be a little bit surprised that teaching and instruction is a huge part of what we do in an academic library. Um, I think a lot of people just assume everybody knows how to use a library. But is that true? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> it is not true. Um, in terms of my role, a lot of what I have to do is curriculum development in actually informing and engaging students in how to use the library in productive ways. So what do they not know? I mean, when you say they don't use it in productive ways, what are, what are some of the mistakes that they make? I, I think, uh, you know, in my point of view, students, if they've done research before, it's been maybe in a public library. So for our, I mean, even the way that our collections are put together are different. The way that they approach a book is going to be different because they're cataloged differently, you know. So even finding the information in the library can be hard for students. Um, students have grown up maybe using Google and finding answers that way, whereas we want them to think a little bit more about scholarly conversations. And so we need to just kind of help them understand how scholarship works and how scholarly communication works and how they fit into that. And I think that's a huge difference between public libraries and academic libraries is the types and structures of information that we're working with is a little bit different. And we have to help our students understand those types and structures. So how do you see that as different, Suzanne, is particularly with our students interacting with these different things like a scholarly journal that, you know, they may not have interacted with before? How do we help them better navigate those kinds of things? 
we have to help them be comfortable with that kind of a format to be able to feel successful in interacting with that information. And so we work at the level that they are. If they're brand new freshmen, you're not going to just throw them in to this really heavy scientific article and say, here, go forward. You're going to look at all these formulas and figure it out. Uh, We start them where they are and then build into what they can do. Yeah, I love that foundation. So what makes you passionate about your work? What what brings you to work every day? Why why is this why is this so cool and awesome to be a librarian? <laughs> One thing that's especially cool about being an academic librarian is that many of us engage in our own research as well. So while we have various job duties like Suzanne and I have already discussed in terms of, you know, assessment or curricular development, Um, We also are highly interested in conducting our own studies and our own research. So for me, I think that that's what gets me in every day is doing the scholarship that I do, which for me is how uh, is about source evaluation. Um, And it's about how students new to a university uh, engage with information. What about you, Suzanne? Uh, For me, it's being able to work with students in a variety of setting. So we have the classroom, and we have excellent teachers in there. And that interaction with students in the classroom is amazing and wonderful. But we also have services where I can do individual consultations with students. And so to be able to get at their level and just really work with them on a particular project and see it to a point where they feel successful and they feel less uh, nervous or Afraid of what they're doing is just very rewarding. I love that. So tell us a favorite story or something, something that just wonderful happened that a great success story that you've had in, in some of your experiences. I think some of my most exciting success stories have to do with the fact that in addition to all the other hats we wear, we oftentimes employ students as well. (laughs) And so we're supervisors along with everything else. And we've had, Suzanne and I have had several students who have worked with us in the library, learned really expert search behaviors, um, and have become researchers in their own right. You know, and it's always heartwarming to look at where they are in their careers now and think back very seriously that, you know, the library has made that, I think, very possible, that their training as researchers has made that possible. That's cool. We got you, Suzanne. I think for me, um, one of the situations that kind of is indicative of the other experiences I've had is a student last summer came to a Writing 150 class, and he was not from this country, and he was really struggling with his research assignment. And so he came to my office afterwards, and we worked together for a couple hours. And I found out a month or so later that he had been considering leaving school because everything was so hard for him. And just that extra time that I'd spent with him made the difference, and he stayed. And I think there are stories that aren't told to us of students that do find that success. And so that, I think, is why I go to work and why I enjoy what I do. Yeah, both both of those are great examples of me too. So as we close our conversation today, tell one piece of advice. So here's a parent or a concerned adult sending their child off to college. What is one piece of advice you would have that parent say to that child about the library environment that they're going to be encountering in college? What, what are one or two things that they could do to, to better engage some of these successful opportunities? I would say make friends with librarians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come often and ask for help. Yeah. And 
Don't be afraid or intimidated by the building or the people or the resources. It's a process and we all understand it and nobody's going to judge or critique in a negative way. I think on any university campus, some of your best friends should be the librarians because they certainly can make your life a lot easier in a lot of different ways. We can save you time. Save you time, effort, all of the above. So yeah, make friends with your librarians is, is the perfect advice to end with. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. I'd like to thank Elise and Suzanne for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. First, we talked with Candace Fleming about her historical fiction books. Then we chatted with Joe Hadfield about his experience reading with his family. Lastly, we discussed the importance of physical fitness with David Barney, a physical education professor. If you missed any of today's show or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. <laughs>